Chapter 3 of Henry Moore Smith, The Mysterious Stranger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bruce McCready. Henry Moore Smith, The Mysterious Stranger by Walter Bates. Chapter 3. Pursued by officers of the law, his whereabouts are frequently discovered, but he eludes his pursuers. Commits a number of thefts. Taken before a magistrate, he makes satisfactory explanation. He goes on his way. The court convenes at Kingston before he is apprehended. But before we pursue his history and his succeeding adventures, it may be necessary for those who are unacquainted with the local situation of the jail from which the prisoner made his escape, to give a short description of it. Kingston is situated on a neck or tongue of land formed by the River St. John and the Belle Isle Bay, running northeast and southwest on the western side of the neck, and by the Canopicasis, running the same course on the western side, leaving a tract of land between the two rivers about five miles in breadth and thirty miles in length. The winter road from Fredericton, the seat of government, to the city of St. John crosses the land at Kingston to the Kennebecasis, and this road is inhabited on both sides. The road is intersected in the center of Kingston by another road running northeasterly to the head of Belle Isle Bay, and is also inhabited on both sides. At the intersection of these roads, on an eminence, stands the courthouse, under which is the prison, and church facing each other east and west at a distance of about eight rods. At the distance of about ten rods from the jail stands the house of Mr. F. N. Perkins to the north, and at an equal distance to the south the house of the Reverend E. Scoville is situated, with various other houses in different directions, the land clear all around to a considerable distance, affording no hiding place. From a prison thus situated and surrounded with dwelling houses did our hero escape, without any eye having seen him, and leaving no mark nor track behind which could direct in the pursuit of him. Finding ourselves unable to pursue in any direction, our conclusions were that he must have either taken the road to St. John or that leading to Nova Scotia the way by which he came, and the only road he was known to be acquainted with. Accordingly, men were dispatched in pursuit of him on the St. John Road, and others sent to different ferries, while I myself, with Mr. Moses Foster, the deputy sheriff, took the road toward Nova Scotia with all speed in the night and rode on until we began to think that we must have passed him. Having arrived at a house which he could not well pass without being seen, we stationed watchers there, and also set watchers in other stations, and maintained a close lookout all night, but to no purpose. At daylight, I furnished Mr. Foster with money and sent him upon the same road with directions to proceed as far as Mr. McLeod's tavern, distance forty miles, and in case of hearing nothing of him, to discontinue the pursuit and return. At the same time, I returned to Kingston myself, where I was informed towards evening that a man who answered his description had crossed the ferry over Belle Isle Bay the evening before in great haste, stating that he was going on an express to Fredericton and must be there by ten o'clock the next morning. This, compared with Mr. Lyon's story, the reader will recollect, of having seen Smith's ghost or apparition the same evening in the twilight, confirmed the opinion that we had now got upon the direction of our runaway. And when we remember further 
that the apparition was passing without touching the ground, we will have some idea of the rapidity with which our self-released hero was scudding along as he carried his neck from the halter. It was now Sunday evening, and he had twenty-four hours of a start, leaving little hopes of his being overtaken by me. As my only alternative, I forwarded advertisements and proposed a reward of twenty dollars for his apprehension and recommitment to custody, but with very little prospect of success, knowing that he was escaping for his life and would succeed in getting out of the country before he would be overtaken. Monday morning, the 26th instant, Mr. Moses Foster returned from his route, and by this time many unfavorable reports concerning the prisoner's escape had begun to be circulated. The court at which he was to receive his trial was now to meet on the Tuesday following, and a jury summoned from different parts of the county for the express purpose of trying the horse-stealer. My whole time and attention were now required to make the necessary preparations for the court, and I felt myself not a little chagrined on reflecting on the circumstances in which I was placed. This feeling became heightened to a painful degree when I came to understand, by Mr. F. E. Jones, that the villain, instead of escaping for his life and getting out of my reach with all possible haste, had only traveled about ten miles the first night, and was seen lying on some straw before the barn of Mr. Robert Bales the next morning, on the road to Gagetown, having lain there till twelve o'clock in the day. But Smith did not lie on his bed of straw for rest merely. Even there he was projecting fresh schemes of villainy, waiting for an opportunity to carry away some booty from the house of Mr. Bales. And so it happened that he did not miss his aim, for Mr. and Mrs. Bales had occasion to leave the house to go some distance, leaving the door unlocked. When the robber entered, broke open the trunk and carried off a silver watch, eight dollars in money, a pair of new velvet pantaloons, and a pocketbook with several other articles. He then walked leisurely on his way, stopping at the next house and at all the houses that were contiguous to the road, so that he did not make more than three or four miles before dark. When Mr. Bales returned to his house and found it had been robbed, he immediately fixed his suspicion on the man who had lain before the barn door from having observed the print of a boot heel which was thought to be his and gave the alarm to his neighbors. They immediately set out in pursuit of him, and having heard that he had been seen on the road at no great distance before them, they followed on in high spirits, expecting shortly to seize him. But in this they were disappointed, for the robber warily turned aside from the road, leaving his pursuers to exercise a painful and diligent search, without being able to ascertain which way he had gone. Having followed as far as Gagetown, they posted up advertisements, descriptive of his person, and also of the watch, and sent some of them on to Fredericton. Late on Sunday night, a man called at the house of Mr. Green, who resided on an island at the mouth of the Washington-Demwalk Lake. He said he was a Frenchman, on his way to Fredericton about land, and called for the purpose of inquiring the way. Mr. Green informed him that he was on an island and that he had better stay till the morning and that he would then direct him on his journey. He made on a large fire by which the man examined his pocketbook and was observed to cast several pages into the fire and finally he threw the pocketbook also. Mr. Green, on seeing this, had an immediate impression that the man must be some improper character which idea was strengthened by the circumstances of its being a time of war. 
In the morning, therefore, he took him in his canoe and carried him directly to Justice Colwell, a neighboring magistrate, that he might give an account of himself. On his examination, he answered with so much apparent simplicity that the justice could find no just ground for detaining him and consequently dismissed him. He then made his way to an Indian camp and hired an Indian, as he said, to carry him to Fredericton, and crossing the river went to Vale's Tavern on Grimross Neck, where he ordered breakfast for himself and his Indian, and had his boots cleaned. At this moment, Mr. Bales, whom he had robbed the day preceding, was getting breakfast at Mr. Vale's and writing advertisements in quest of the robber. About eleven o'clock, he, with the Indian, started again, leaving Mr. Vales unknown and undetected, but not without taking with him a set of silver teaspoons from the side closet in the parlor. The time was now come for the sitting of the court, and about eleven o'clock on Tuesday morning, the Attorney General arrived from Fredericton with very unfavorable impressions on his mind, bringing information that the robber was still traversing the country, stealing and robbing wherever he came, without sufficient effort being made for his apprehension. The jury also were collecting from the different parishes of the county, bringing with them unfavorable ideas from the reports and circulation concerning his escape. Among the many opinions that were formed on the subject, one particularly was very industriously circulated. The prisoner was a Freemason, and it will be recollected that Mr. Dibble, the jailer, was stated in a former part of the narrative to be a Freemason also, and that there was a Freemason lodge held at Kingston. The public mind was strongly prejudiced against us, unwilling to believe the real circumstances of his elopement, and the court assembled under the strongest impressions that his escape was connived at. The Honorable Judge Chipman presided on the occasion. The court was now ready for business, but no prisoner, yet high expectations were cherished that every hour would bring tidings of his apprehension, as he was pursued in every direction. The grand jury was impaneled, and the court adjourned till next day at eleven o'clock, waiting anxiously for the proceeds of the intermediate time, and to render the means for his apprehension as effectual as possible. Mr. Benjamin Fernald, with a boat well manned, was dispatched in the pursuit, with directions to follow on as far as he could get any account of him. Wednesday, the court again met and commenced other business, but nothing from Smith yet. In the afternoon, Mr. John Pearson, witness against him, arrived from Nova Scotia, a distance of 280 miles. Towards evening, conclusions were beginning to be drawn that he had eluded all his pursuers and was making his way back to Nova Scotia, and the conjecture almost amounted to a certainty by the circumstance of a man being seen crossing the Washamademoc and making towards Belle Isle Bay. Nothing more was heard until Thursday morning early when Mr. B. Fernald returned and reported that he had found his course and pursued him through Maugerville, that the night before he, Mr. Fernald, reached Maugerville, the robber had lodged at Mr. Solomon Purley's and stole a pair of new boots and had offered the silver teaspoons for sale that he had stolen at Mr. Vale's that he walked up as far as Mr. Bailey's tavern, where he stopped some time, and that he was afterwards seen towards the evening under a bridge, counting his money. 
This was the last that could be heard of him in this place. It was now believed that he had taken an Indian to pilot him and had gone by the way of the Washington-Demwalk and head of Belle Isle for Nova Scotia. This was in accordance with the idea entertained at Kingston before Mr. Fernald's return. At 10 o'clock on Thursday morning, the court met according to adjournment to bring the business then before them to a close, without much hope of hearing any further of the horse-stealer at this time, when, about three in the afternoon, a servant of Mr. Knox's, who, it will be remembered, was the plaintiff in the cause, came direct to the court with information to his master that his other horse was missing out of the pasture, that he had been known to be in the pasture at one o'clock at night and was gone in the morning and that a strange Indian had been seen about the place. This extraordinary news produced much excitement in the court, and the coincidence of the Indian crossing the country with the robber with the Indian seen at Mr. Knox's confirmed the opinion that Smith had made himself owner of Mr. Knox's other horse also. Mr. Knox, on hearing this news, became exceedingly agitated, had no doubt that Smith was the thief again, would not listen to the sheriff, who was not just willing to credit the report of the horse being stolen, and affirmed that his life was in danger if Smith was suffered to run at large. His honor, the judge, expressed his opinion that great remissness of duty appeared. A general warrant was issued by the court, directed to all the sheriffs and ministers of justice throughout the province, commanding them to apprehend the said Moore Smith and bring him to justice. In the meantime, men were appointed to commence a fresh march in quest of him, to go in different directions. Mr. Knox, with Henry Lyon and Isaiah Smith, took the road to Nova Scotia, and Moses Foster, the deputy sheriff, and Nathan DeForest directed their course to Fredericton, by the head of Belle Isle Bay, with orders to continue their search as far as they could get information of him, or to the American settlement. The sheriff then wrote advertisements for the public papers, offering a reward of $40 for his apprehension, and the attorney general increased the sum to $80. Indictments were prepared, and the grand jury found a bill against the sheriff and jailer for negligence in suffering the prisoner to escape. They were held to bail to appear at the end of the next court of Oyer and Terminer to traverse the indictments. The business of the court being at the close, the sheriff paid the witness, Mr. Pearson from Nova Scotia, for his travel and attendance, amounting to $100, after which the court finally adjourned. End of chapter 3